0: Welcome to The Theology Mill, brought to you by Wipf and Stock Publishers. I'm your host, Zach Mickel. In this podcast, we interview some of the leading authors in theology, biblical studies, philosophy, and more. Many of the folks we interview on the show are also authors with us at Whitfenstock, where we have the honor of putting into print a broad swath of work that nourishes both the academy and the church. On this episode, I interview Dr. Leighton Friesen. Dr. Friesen is the academic dean at Steinbeck Bible College in Manitoba and formerly served as the conference pastor of the Evangelical Mennonite Conference of Canada. He is also the author of Secular Nonviolence and the Theodrama of Peace, Anabaptist Ethics, and the Catholic Christology of Hans Urs von Balthasar. In our interview, Dr. Friesen and I discuss the work of Hans Urs von Balthasar and its relationship to ethics, contemplation, Karl Barth, contemporary Mennonite communities, and a whole lot more. So with that friends, let's hop over to the interview. Let's jump into Balthasar. Um, let's start with what impresses you the most about him as a theologian.
1: Well, I guess like so many people, I've been impressed by what I see is the combination of an extremely humble man, a gentle, a gentle writer in some ways, with uh, a voracious curiosity um, he had just a massive intellectual and personal capacity, and it seemed as though he was determined to bring the entire cosmos kind of through the door of the stable uh, where Jesus was born. And, and that was his, that was his lifelong project. And so there was there', was, there was literally nothing outside of his interest. Um, be it theology or biblical studies or cultural studies or spiritual theology, mysticism, philosophy, literature, uh, history, the patristics. I mean, he's, he he just seemed to be one of these rare souls who was determined to understand all of it if he could, and and find some way of of unifying it all too, uh, and and looking for unity in all of this. He was he was determined to do that. And so that's, that's what really fascinated me. I mean, this makes him a, a very difficult person to read, and almost everybody struggles with reading Balthazar, and I struggled mightily with reading Balthazar. Uh, not, not because he's using such difficult words or jargon uh, from his specialty so much as that he, he really demands that his reader has as much curiosity about things as he does. And he demands that his reader knows as much as he does. And so he, he, uh, he often makes it difficult. Um, but my experience in reading Balthazar is that, yes, it's very difficult. But there are these moments, um, and, and every Balthazar scholar will testify to that, that. There's these moments when the clouds kind of break apart and you see this vast cathedral that is the world as Christ has brought it together. And 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 at those moments you're you're almost you're almost weeping for joy, uh, and falling on your knees in adoration of Christ. It's it's just quite it can be quite moving. Um, so that's I think what kind of drew me to Balthazar. That's what continues to fascinate me about him. Um, you get you get the sense when you're reading Balthazar that uh, in order to really understand what he's saying you have to you have to kind of kneel beside him. And contemplate the glory of jesus christ and that's um and and so reading balthazar is not only intellectually demanding it's also very spiritually demanding as well um so he's a bit of a strange he's a bit of a strange writer in some ways he doesn't fit in with a lot of other 20th century uh theology but for that very reason he's worth reading i think and so yeah that 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 impressed me and fascinates me to this day
0: he sort of like plods along like he's such a thorough writer, yeah, um, and is so patient with his with his subject. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. you're saying, he requires you to have the same kind of patience. Yeah, um, but it does kind of break into this like beautiful symphony, like you're talking about.
1: Yeah, and and uh, I mean, Balthazar is a little bit like Bart in that way as well. That he doesn't he he doesn't sort of start with one premise and then kind of build on it logically at, to his final argument the way some writers would it's not a linear way it's it's more circular like you're saying and so he he keeps circ circulating back to these basic themes and so and, and every time he kind of comes back again to these themes he's built on it right and so my my uh Strategy in reading Balthazar, which I think, I think works, is that when you when you find something that you don't understand in Balthazar, it doesn't really help to slow down and go and reread. The best policy or the best strategy is just to move forward and keep reading because eventually he's gonna land back again where he started, just having enriched the conversation a little bit. That's kind of how he builds his his argument. Is is it's a bit of a wandering here and there, gathering things, but always coming back to some of these basic themes that, uh, that become very rich uh, in the process mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, on the flip side, what's one critique you might make of his project?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I as I said before, i am uh, I am an evangelical and a Mennonite, and so we have there's many you know dogmatic or theological differences that we would have. Uh-huh. Um, but I think uh, w- one of the criticisms that he often faces from people, and I think there is some value in the criticism, is that sometimes you get the sense in reading Balthazar that he almost knew too much, or or that he pries into realms that I'm not sure we as human beings are supposed to know all that much about. Like, for instance, um, the, the relationship between the, the three persons of the Trinity. In in eternity. Um, Balthazar is really confident that there is a unity between who the Trinity is in its in its eternal mystery and what Jesus of Nazareth revealed about God in the Incarnation. And uh, at one level all Christians believe this. But Balthazar can get really specific and detailed about how the members of the Trinity relate in, in all their eternal mystery. And a number of writers have worried that maybe Balthazar is prying into areas that have just not really been given for to us to know. and i and I think that's a fair concern, though he had he had reasons for what he did, and I think he had controls on what he did. but but that is sometimes uh, a criticism that i I worry about. Um, some of this had to do with his relationship with Adrian Buschper. Uh, who was a mystic, who uh, saw a lot of visions and had a lot of um, very profound experiences of, of the Trinity, of of the cross, of Holy Saturday. And uh, Balthazar spent a fair bit of time writing down these visions and uh, and trying to incorporate them into his theology. And so um, that, that also kind of gives Balthazar a window into things that a lot of other people might say, you know, have not really been given to us to know. And that's, I think that's a fair concern, but it's one that we need to struggle with, I think.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. We were talking about, right. The patience required in sort of reading Balthazar. Yeah. Um, But not all of his books are so plotting and, (laughs) and yeah, exactly. Uh, But I guess my, my question is for those who are new, to are what are some good starting points as far as his own work, but also as far as uh, maybe secondary sources as well?
1: yeah, with with most theologians, I always say, you know, read them in their own words first because that's usually a whole lot more interesting. and then and then read secondary sources later on. I mean with with someone like Bart, it's certainly the case or Luther. I mean, Luther's so colorful in his own words, but when people set about to write about Luther, it's often you know kind of dry. Um, but with Balthazar, I, am tempted to kind of make an exception to that. Um, especially if like me, you don't come with a background in 20th century Roman Catholic debates. Um, it's really helpful to get a, a bit of the lay of the land before you wander into Balthazar. So there's, there's a couple books that I found really helpful, um, one of them is Edward Oaks. Uh, he's written a book called Patterns of Redemption. That's a big kind of broad overview of all of the big themes in Balthazar's writing and a lot of the issues that he raises. And so that's a that's a really good introduction to all, like almost the entirety of Balthazar's thought. Um, and, and Oakes was a really good reader of Balthazar. I've, I've appreciated him at, at a number of places. Um, and then the second one uh, that I've, I've often recommended is... Um, Mark uh, Macintosh Mark has written a book called *Christology from Within*. It's a fairly old book by now, but it still is, I think, you know, a, a very good introduction to the place of Jesus in Balthazar's writing, and that's hugely important. His Christology, and specifically the Christology that he picked up from Maximus the Confessor and from Ignatius of Loyola. Um, so those are those are two introductions that I think. Um, you know are are fairly readable and accessible. Um, then, in terms of reading Balthazar himself, I I always tell people to start with his book on prayer. It's a, it's a small book. It's uh, it's it's meant to guide people in contemplation and how they uh, they relate to Jesus in prayer. Um, I know I think Eugene Peterson has said that this is the best book on prayer that was ever written. Um, which is which is a pretty amazing endorsement. Um, so that's that's a good that's a great book to start with. The other the other one that gets into more of the stuff that I deal with in my dissertation an introduction to a lot of that stuff is a book called Engagement with God. It's uh, a book that Balthazar wrote that was. It's kind of a uh, you might say it's a common man a uh, common person's uh, version of his theodrama which was uh, uh, the second part of his trilogy, um, which is much more extensive. But uh, Engagement with God is a small book again, and it describes uh, Balthazar, uh, Balthazar's whole view on freedom and the relationship between God and the world and how God gives the world freedom and engages with the world. Um, so that's that's another, another uh, book that I think is fairly accessible and nothing is easy when reading Balthazar, but it's, these are books that, that one can start reading and begin to see sort of the, some of the basic themes and patterns that come up in, in Balthazar's,
0: in Balthazar's thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What's your personal favorite book by Von Balthazar and why?
1: Well, that would probably be uh, the book on prayer. I mean, that was the first book that I read. And so uh, I think that will always have a special place in my library. And, and as I continued reading other books by Balthazar, the more I learned about him, the more I came to see that all of his theology sort of comes home in his book on prayer. It's, uh, it's really a bottomless reflection on what it means to contemplate Jesus, to see, to see Jesus, and then to respond to Jesus. Um, of course, I've been very interested in Balthazar and his thought on ethics. And the important thing here is that for Balthazar, ethics kind of flows out of contemplation. As, as we look at Jesus, as we adore the manner of living that he had before his father and before the world, you know, our hearts are transformed and, and we're moved, we're motivated to get up and follow this Lord. And so even to think about ethics from Balthazar's point of view is to first talk about prayer. And so I, I think that uh, that book has been pretty foundational in my appreciation of Balthazar, even, even though in my own book, I don't write much about, uh, mm-hmm. about his book on prayer.
0: Right, right. Yeah, you had mentioned earlier um, how you were a Mennonite pastor and you, you didn't know many other people um, in, your, kind of in your circles who were reading Balthazar. And also yeah. in your book, you mentioned, right, that you're the first Mennonite theologian to treat von Balthasar's theological project that you knew of. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious kind of what led you to study Balthasar.
1: Well, I have to admit that back in grad school, uh, the thing 20 years ago, the thing that really kind of piqued my interest was his cool name. Um, I mean, how many 20th century writers can, can trot out a name like Hans Urs von Balthasar? Uh, and So that's that's what kind of, that's what kind of grabbed my attention or or write books with names like Theodrama. Um, All right, right. So that there is a certain kind of cool factor there, I guess. But but I think what convinced me to study his work during my doctoral studies uh, was the way he struggled with what it means to follow Jesus in a modern secular world. Uh, And a modern secular world that is, on the one hand, absolutely fascinated with Jesus. In some ways, our world can't look away from this man on the cross. And on the other hand, uh, a world that is desperately trying to scrape every semblance of Jesus off his hands. And Mennonites, uh, we have often struggled with questions of, of worldliness. Uh, what does it mean to be conformed to the patterns of this age? And how do we live life uh, in the world, but not out of the world? And so, and, and those struggles have just become more intense with time. Um, this seems to be kind of the, the big question that Mennonites have been given to sort through on behalf of the larger church. And and Balthazar, it seems to me, has a very unique view on how the person of jesus and the world come together and so that's what that's what drew me to write about balthazar because i think he has something to teach um to teach people like mennonites but many others as well who who really have a strong emphasis on the ethical on the moral on being obedient on discipleship Mm -hmm. he has a lot to teach uh folks like that about what that means in a secular in a secular age and so that's that's what attracted Mm -hmm. me to to balthazar
0: Mm -hmm. yeah you're kind of touching on this already but um my next question is similar um because in your book you distinguish between um kind of on the one hand mennonites whose faith has maybe been secularized or or just lost altogether and then on the other hand mennonites who have kind of retreated from the world um into like different forms of separatism um, and then you sort of present Balthasar as kind of offering like a third way, um, yeah. bridging these two, um, or just a third option at least. So, what would you say? Um, what would you say is like the wisdom that Balthazar offers to Mennonite churches and individual Mennonites, um, kind of grappling with the temptation to either of those two extremes?
1: Yeah, I think this goes back to what I said before about the relationship between uh, Jesus and secularity. Um, this this modern mindset that is now almost invincible in the West. On the one hand, uh, secularity has a deep fascination with Jesus. You know, for example, the compassion of, of Jesus for the poor and the marginalized. Um, this is an example. These are, these are aspects of Jesus' teaching that secularity is built upon. But on the other hand, um, secularity has been deeply suspicious of Jesus and tries to get away from uh, the, the one sort of basic conviction that drove Jesus forward. And that is, that is his love and surrender to God, the father, the secular age has, uh, that we live in has often seen this as being far too narrow, far too focused on self-sacrifice. Um, it's, it's just not good for people, mm-hmm. um, secularity kind of begins with human experience with with kind of evaluating all reality by how it fits with our experience right now and uh, and and this doctrine of self-sacrificing oneself for for God um, is just seen very suspiciously so on the one hand, there's there's so much within secularity that is so Christ-like, but at the at the other on the other hand, there is so much that is completely antithetical to the way that Jesus lived his life. And that makes it very difficult to live like Jesus in the modern world. And mm-hmm. and Mennonites, I think, have gone in three directions on this, actually. I think there's sort of the more progressive liberal option um, that has tended to teach, you know, those aspects of nonviolence that that any kind of good, progressive, secular person would agree with. And the temptation here is actually to kind of leave Jesus behind. Jesus doesn't really form the, the foundation for this anymore, um, because in a secular world, you just don't need Jesus to form that foundation. But then the second uh, option, and this is more of a, the conservative Mennonite one that you might see more with Amish or Hutterites, is to say that, you know, we can live like Jesus, but we can't live like Jesus in the world, and so let's let's withdraw into these close-knit enclaves of the pure, of the pure church. And then the third one that I think is 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 maybe more of an evangelical Mennonite uh, option, and that is is to say that let's let's focus on Christ's relationship to the Father. Let's take his message out into the world, but let's leave behind his ethics. Let's not focus so much on his way of life. And so uh, none of these options, of these three options, really follows the whole Jesus with the whole of life into the whole of the world. And mm-hmm. and here I think um, the Mennonite experience is kind of a microcosm of a dilemma that the larger church has in the secular world. And Balthazar struggled with all of this. I mean, this this is exactly the question that drove so much of his... His writings. On the one hand, he could be he could be fiercely anti-modern. Um, he viewed the modern age as, but on, but on the other hand, he he saw the modern age as as presenting a, a kind of an opportunity actually for a new kind of discipleship, and so he had a bit of an ambivalent view of the modern age. And his response to this dilemma that I've just described here was kind of threefold. Uh, First of all, we start with contemplation, um, by which he meant kind of a real, live, vibrant kind of day-to-day beholding of the Lord. And so Christians are those who track Jesus. Uh, We're not just sort of charting our own path or constructing our own ideas. We, We cannot, you know, sever some principle from Jesus and then live on that principle alone apart from the life of Jesus. And so that's the first thing is that you start with revelation, you start with beholding the glory of the Lord as it appears to you, and as it appears in the world. And then the second thing for Balthazar was the presence of the Holy Spirit. Um, We're not condemned to kind of figuring these things out on our own, the Holy Spirit kind of takes us into the mission of Jesus in the world. And the Spirit gives us insight and wisdom to know how to how to tease things apart, how to make distinctions, how to live uh, with courage, this vision of Jesus in a world that is full of of riddles and dilemmas. Um, and I think that's that's an important thing there is that the spirit doesn't solve these things for us so much as the spirit takes us into the world where we struggle with courage and insight and creativity with these dilemmas that that we have been given to given to face and then and then the third thing is suffering it's hugely important for Balthazar is that this vision of tracking Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in the real world is going to involve suffering and and suffering not only just in the sense that the world is going to persecute us but suffering in the sense that we, we're just not gonna know all, we're not always gonna know how to fit everything together we're often going to struggle to 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 do what Jesus wants us to do in the world, and so that's a that's a form of of struggle that I see throughout Balthazar, in uh, in so many ways. And so that's that's kind of I think how Balthazar would say we live. As followers of Jesus in a secular world, we 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 we, we track Jesus in, in a very explicit day-to-day kind of kind of way. We we live by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then we expect a certain kind of ambivalence and difficulty, and and even and even suffering. Um, mm-hmm. And so that I think I think that actually, and I get into this a fair bit in my book, I, I think that actually matches a much earlier form of Anabaptism that goes back to the 16th century. Um, that wasn't quite as confident as we are today about taking this, this sort of nonviolence and making it work in the world. In mm-hmm. um, um, it, it, it's it's more it, it more is uh, attuned to just sort of union with Christ, and then suffering the kinds of dilemmas and riddles that that that, that
0: faces in the world. Mm. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, you as a Mennonite, you come from a pacifist tradition, whereas Balthazar, right, as a Roman Catholic, comes from kind of more of a just war tradition. Um, um, where was I at? Uh, yeah. 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 So you're coming from kind of more of a pacifist tradition. He's coming from more of a just war tradition. Um, so, and I know you deal with this in your book, but would you describe all this um, kind of why or why not? Uh, And then just more generally, how would you describe kind of his theology's relationship with violence?
1: Yeah. Uh, Are you still hearing me pretty good? Yeah. Okay. Cause I, I, you just cut out in that question there, but I think I know what the question is. So I'll launch it, do it. And if I,
0: Okay, sounds good.
1: sounds good. If I answer a question that you didn't ask, then uh, just stop me. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really interesting question. And uh, and I go into quite a bit of detail about that in my book. Um, Balthazar would have never called himself a pacifist, as you say. Um, he kind of associated that word with certain aspects of liberation theology that in his mind was imposing the cross on the world as a kind of secular political reality. And he just, he just was suspicious of that kind of a project. I think he, he didn't like the ism part of pacifism. Um, it sounded too much like it was a, a kind of a neat and tidy principle that you can kind of extract out of the, out of the life of Jesus. And then you can apply that in a fairly easy way to secular life where, where Jesus is not Lord. Um, or not recognized as Lord, and he just yeah he just did, was suspicious of those kinds of principles, those kinds of, of programs, and yet at the same time he was he was fascinated by this question, and he keeps coming back to questions of violence in his writing. Um, his his understanding of Jesus and the life of faith they almost demand uh, a strong refusal of violence. The Christian tradition, as you know, has sought to kind of make peace with violence in various ways over the centuries, and the just war tradition is is the most notable example of that. But in in all of my reading of Balthazar, I've never seen him try to make peace with violence in that way, Um, to try to chasten violence or to kind of Make violence into something that can be kind of like an act of righteousness um, for for disciples and and this is what has fascinated me there there's a there's a strong gospel nonviolence at the heart of Balthasar's thought, even though he didn't want to call himself a pacifist. um and 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 here's how I see this kind of working out for Balthazar. Balthazar understood the life of faith to be. Uh, a lifelong process of entering into the work of Jesus. And that's that's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And and very central for Balthazar uh, to the posture of Jesus in the world was a kind of non-resistance. Uh, Balthazar talks a lot about this posture of letting be. Um, it's what we see in the response of Mary to the announcement of the angel. Let it be with me according to your word. You can, you can think of this, this letting be, this posture of letting be, uh, as an inner non-resistance going in two directions for Jesus. First, in the direction of the Father who sent him into the world. And so Jesus is non-resistant to the Father. But secondly, there's a, there's a letting be to the world as well, to the world and all its wretchedness. And This is the, this is the letting be of, of love. And this, this non-resistance in two directions is eventually what got Jesus crucified. It, it was his response to evil. And my argument in this book is that this posture of letting be, of, of non-resistance in two directions, to the Father, and because of that, to an evil world. Um, this is kind of the spiritual, theological ethical furnace of of a gospel pacifism um that's that's kind of the argument that i that i make in, in the book and so i'm not arguing that balthazar was a pacifist i am arguing that his theology of christ's vocation from the father to love the world at is is a kind of a, a, a inner is kind of the inner heart of gospel mm-hmm. pacifism or it can be and that's that's kind of where I'm coming from in the
0: book. Got it, okay. Yeah, um, yeah so we we recently, at uh, Wippenstock, interviewed um, William Kavanaugh, and he talked a bit about kind of um, differences between popes who uh, maybe emphasize charity over clarity versus popes who have emphasized charity over clarity. I think I said that the right way. Um, whereas with with your project and with Balthazar's project, right, one idea you're drawing from Balthazar is that they're actually interdependent, right? Doctrine and ethics are interdependent. Yeah. Um, So how would you describe the relationship Balthazar puts forth between the church's doctrinal teachings and then the Christian's mode of action in the world um, or another way to actually matter for life? According to Balthasar and according to you, why or why not?
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a very, that's a very good question. And, it, and in the last 500 years, we've, we've gradually been, been, been driving a wedge between doctrine and ethics. And I think part of the motivation for this wedge was the inability of European society after the Reformation to find a practical unity in, in confession, in theology. And it became apparent that theology was just going to drive society into endless conflict and violence. And so um, beginning already, I think in the 17th century, there was a a project begun to see if we could figure out a way to be good, decent, civilized people, even though we do not agree on theology. And what gradually happened out of that project, uh, obviously, went on much longer than that, was that even for Christians, it's come to be assumed that you don't need doctrine in order to be good. But what people like Balthazar, and, and I think Karl Barth as well, began to see in the 20th century was that not only did this result in really, really awful theology, Um, Theology that was sort of dry as sawdust, it was was abstract, it was separated from life. It was even separated from from spirituality in some ways. Um, Not only did it result in in awful theology, it also resulted in awful ethics. Um, And the 20th century was uh, one long example of this, the the Holocaust being the chief one of them. And so both of them began kind of going back to something pre-modern something that you know I think is much more biblical which is to see that ethics emerges from the acts of God it is controlled and judged and directed by what God is doing and so the first thing you got to do if you want to be a good person is you need to look you need to see what God is doing in the scriptures what God is doing in the present world and and once you have looked then you can begin to act. And one of the chief ways that we look, one of the chief ways that we can see what God is doing is by having our eyes trained through the great kind of creedal convictions of the church. These these dogmas are are ways of training our eyes to see the mighty acts of God in the world and to understand those acts properly. As God intended them to be understood. And it is once we understand those acts that we can begin to contemplate how we might get in on that action, how we might participate. And that's where ethics comes in. And so to become a godly person, you first need to contemplate the acts of God and understand them correctly, and then think about how we are going to get in on that, how we're going to participate in those actions and what that kind of life would look like. And so that's that's how I understand Balthazar to be to be coming at ethics and how he is uniting kind of dogma and ethics into into one into one whole. And so these these dogmas, the, 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 these convictions of the Christian church, they're not just sort of timeless propositions. They're actually descriptions of what God has done for us in in the history of salvation. And uh, and that gives us then the, the foundation for, for thinking about ethics.
0: Sure. Okay, so let's jump to our last question, uh, which is the relationship between Balthazar and Karl Barth. So how would you yeah. describe between kind of the giant... Of Catholic theology and the theology in the 20th century? How did they influence each other? And what were some of their main um, agreements and disagreements?
1: Yeah. Um, actually, the, there's a really good book that's uh, been written on this, um, and that's Saving Karl Barth by D. Stephen Long. And so I'd encourage anyone to read that book if you want more uh, in-depth discussion about their friendship. Um, Balthasar and Barth- were were great friends for... Much of their lives, they both lived in Basel. Um, apparently, they would vacation together um, or get together to play piano and listen to Mozart. They both loved Mozart. Um, we know that Balthazar read a whole lot of Bart. He was a great fan of Bart's writing, and whenever Bart would put out another version or another uh, volume of his church dogmatics, and Bart would uh, Balthasar would snatch that up and and would be would be reading that. Um it's not really that clear that Bart read as much of Balthazar, which is kind of an uh, unfortunate. Um, but they shared a they shared some basic instincts, which I shared earlier. And and that basic instinct is that we start with the revelation of God rather than human religious experience. That was a basic conviction that they had. And so that they 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 both they were both fighting against certain kind of Machian privileging of human experience that in their minds had created a lot of mischief in theology and in culture. And so they both uh, worked very hard against that. But they also had their differences, and these were pretty fierce as well. They, they had a lifelong dialogue that's been really interesting. Um, because of the, the track record of liberal Protestant theology in the 19th century, Bart wanted to have absolutely nothing to do with natural theology. Any kind of natural connection between God and humanity, he, he was suspicious of anything like this he thought this would inevitably become idolatry because as soon as there was some kind of natural connection between god and humanity humans would would sort of have their own path to god and grace would no longer be needed and so on on one level who could blame him uh, bart had seen where this kind of idea would lead in liberal in the liberal german church with the nazis and etc but but Balthazar saw things a little bit differently, though he had some of the same concerns. Balthazar had a stronger sense that God had created the world, and so that so that the world could serve as a divine revelation. For, for Balthazar, creation is not a secular thing. It's actually created by God, which of course Bart would have agreed with. But, but Balthazar had a stronger sense that because the world is created by God, because God has saved the world, it is possible for us to, to understand creation, understand culture, understand the human spirit as revealing some things uh, about God. And that this is not necessarily just idolatry. Um, but this was uh, this was a basic debate that they argued about till the very day that they, uh, till the day they died. And, um, I don't think they ever resolved it. And, and theologians are actually still debating about this. I just read an article last night about, uh, about this debate. And, and so it keeps going on. Um, but nevertheless, they remain friends. And this is a, this is the, this is a fascinating story. Uh, I'm told that near the end of his life, Bart was attending a Catholic church every Sunday. And so maybe he did learn something from Balthazar after all, but, uh, but yeah, it's an interesting friendship.
0: Hmm. That's, that's, that's so funny. I didn't know that little fact about Bart. Um, Well, I think this is a great place for us to wrap up. Um, Yeah, it's been a really rich conversation. I just want to say thank you for taking the time. Thanks for listening to The Theology Mill, brought to you by Whitfenstock Publishers. If you liked what you heard and would like to hear more, you can subscribe to our show, where we have a lot more content coming your way. I'm your host, Zach Mickle, signing off on this episode of The Theology Mill. We hope to see you again soon to share a drink and talk all things theology. Until then, good friends, God bless, and we'll see you very soon.